Welcome to the 446th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with best-selling writer Christina Baker-Klein, author of the novel The Exiles. Stay tuned for the interview. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Christina Baker-Klein. Christina is a number one New York Times bestselling author of eight novels, including The Exiles, Orphan Train, and A Piece of the World. And her novels are published in 40 countries. She's received the New England Prize for Fiction, the Maine Literary Award, a Barnes & Noble Discovery Award, among other prizes. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. So glad to be here. Sure. If someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, The Exiles, how would you describe the novel? The Exiles, <laughs> the easiest <laughs> way to describe it is that The Exiles is the story of the convict women, the British convict women who transformed Australia in the 19th century and the Tasmanian people whose way of life was permanently altered when British colonists landed on their shores. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing The Exiles? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's my eighth novel. So I've been doing this for a while. And I haven't written a novel before that took place in another country entirely. I have one novel that is, takes place a little bit in England, but really they're set in America. And a number of years ago, there was a short piece in the New York Times, just a little article about, it was in a parenting column of all things. <laughs> and it was about how convict women on these ships had their children with them a lot of times and how hard that was. I think it was comparing saying, you think you've got it bad. Imagine yeah, being really. you know, four months on a convict ship going to Australia with your child or children. And I just got this tingle all over. I knew that this was a great story. I was immediately captivated. And I think the question that I've had to ask myself since then is, Apparently, I'm the only person who had that reaction because I'm the only person who wrote this book or this kind of book even. I have thought a lot about it, and I realized that in my own past, there are three different strands that led to it. One, I went to Australia as a Rotary Fellow when I was in my 20s, and it was a really formative experience. Two, I have taught in women's prisons, and I'm really interested in the criminal justice system and, and what it means to be incarcerated. So that was a sort of fascination. And three, I wrote a book with my mother on feminist mothers and daughters. It was 60 women we interviewed. And I wrote that nonfiction book a number of years ago and discovered, and I think have never wavered from the idea that when women tell their stories, they're often new. In other words, we often get pieces of history that might not be in the history books because history, of course, is written by usually the conquerors. And women have been, they only recently in this grand scheme of things got the right to vote and all that. And in fact, at the time of my novel, women were considered property, both in England and America. So I, I think those different interests all came together to form this book. So I'm curious, what kind of research did you do on the founding of Australia 
yeah. your novel, The Exiles. Well, the first thing I did is I read this incredible book called The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes. Robert Hughes was a historian and an art historian. He wrote beautifully. He has since died, but that book has not gone out of print. It's it's wonderful if anyone's interested in how Australia became the nation that we know of it today. And that is a 700-page book, but only one chapter is devoted to the convict women and to the Aboriginal people, only one chapter together. And that, as I read the book, was the thing that interested me most. So it catapulted me into this research. I I went back to Australia twice as an, in the past couple of years. I did a ton of research on the ground. I went to these women's prisons I also met a historian whom I had stalked online, a woman named Alison Alexander, a professor who's written, she's really written 35 books about the history of Australia, about the convict women, about the period I'm, my novel's about. So she was super helpful. And then I just read many different kinds of sources. Some were written in the 1840s and 50s when my book takes place. Some were written in this sort of century and a half since then. And a lot of them are academic articles that were written really in the past year and a half about about what the British colonizing of Australia really did to that nation. And, and also, I would say the personality of the Australian, the sort of typical Australian personality, where does it come from? To even today, 20% of Australians are descended from convicts. And there's a kind of frank, I don't know, adventurousness. There's a physical sort of exuberance. There's a friendliness to the Australian nature that I think emerges out of that kind of renegade sensibility of their ancestors. I'm curious when these convict women went over there, I'm just curious about the history behind your novel in terms of all of the research you've done. When, when these women went over there, they went over there as settlers, right? They weren't in a prison in Australia. Is that correct? They actually were. I mean, well, let me step back for a second. Sure. Until the 1820s, I'll just tell you a very brief history. Okay. <laughs> so you know how we declared our independence from Britain in the 18th century? Before that, Britain had sent more than 50,000 convicts to America. I didn't even know that when I before I wrote the book. But there were more than 50,000 people who came over here as convicts. And when we declared independence, we said, <laughs> uh, that is not happening anymore. You're going to have to find somewhere else. And so first they looked, Britain looked at Africa, the coast of Africa, but they couldn't find a secure port. And then they looked at Australia. So between 1780s, Three and 1803, they sent all these men. And so they were sending male convicts over to these kind of terrifying workhouses in Australia and prisons. And by 1803, Australia was nine to one men to women. And the British government realized they had a problem because they didn't just want a penal colony that died out. They wanted a thriving outpost. So they came up with a scheme to export women. And they transported women to Australia from ports, all kinds of ports, but mostly London. And over under the flimsiest of pretenses, these women ha had committed what they used to call crimes of poverty, which means they stole a loaf of bread to feed their families or maybe a spoon 
a bolt of cloth to trade because there was no social safety net at all. There were no social programs or anything like that in England. And there was really no social mobility. So these poor women were hardly missed. Their families missed them, but there was certainly not a movement to figure out what was happening. And all these women ended up targeted for transportation and were sent to Australia. And at first, just this finally answers your question. At first, they were not sent to prisons. They didn't have prisons for them. They had this incredibly barbaric system where they would announce to towns that women were coming. And when the ship landed, the women disembarked. And if a man chose you or picked you out of the lineup and for any purpose, to be his slave, to be a paid helper in the household, to be God knows what else, then your sentence was commuted to his basically ownership. So that was not (laughs) You might imagine, not a good system. And eventually the British press got wind of this. And in the 1820s, Australia, the British who were in Australia started building prisons for the women because they realized it looked really bad to do it the other way. So believe it or not, the prisons that I describe in my book were a marked improvement over just letting these women loose into this society of outlaws who, you know, then had ownership of them. Well, I'm curious if you've created a reading list for people who read your novel, The Exiles, and are interested and want to learn more about Australian history. Oh, that's history. a good question. I'm going to do that now that you mention it. There are so many great books that I discovered, a lot of nonfiction ones. And as I mentioned, Alison Alexander, if you just Google her website, you'll see all of her incredible books about the history of Australia. There haven't been a ton of novels. There's a really good one called Wanting by Richard Flanagan, which is about the Aboriginal girl, a real life person, Mathina, whom I describe in my book as well. I have her as a character. Mathina, this this person who really lived, was taken in as a social experiment by the, the governor of Tasmania and his wife, Lady Jane and Sir John Franklin. He then became an Arctic explorer, by the way, and disappeared in the Arctic eventually. He was a fascinating character. But they took this Aboriginal girl in. She was the daughter of a chieftain, so they thought she was a princess, or they called her that. And they decided they wanted to turn her into a British lady. So they dressed her in English-style clothes. They taught her French. They taught her to dance. And, And then when they went back to London a few years later, they abandoned her. And she was caught between two worlds, the world of the white settlers that she didn't fit in and the world of the Aboriginal people whom she no longer really had much in common with. She didn't speak the language anymore and things like that. And so that story was pretty interesting, is really interesting. And a lot of Australians know it because it's become a symbol of what happened to the Aboriginal people when the British came in. When you're writing a novel with a historical setting, what is your writing process? Do you have in mind the plot and you're looking for historical research to to integrate that plot with? I'm just curious a little bit yeah. about your process. They, when you're writing a novel like this that requires so much research, those two elements sort of work in tandem. First, I do a lot of research and I start to look at the arc of people's real life stories. What really happened to people and how did they move forward once they got to Australia? How did they integrate into a sort of larger social framework? 
So that was one of the things. And what is the journey of a typical convict? That was one of the things I was looking at too. And also I had the outline of Bethina's story. So I did a ton of research, as I said, and then I just finally had to take the plunge and start writing. My novels, I'm, plot isn't my strongest point, so I often will base a novel on a framework. Like, for example, when I wrote my first novel, Sweetwater, I was reading a lot of Greek drama plays. And I based the structure of that novel on the Oresteia by Aeschylus, which is three plays, three linked plays. And the plot of that novel tracks those plays. Now that book got about 40 or 50 reviews from reviewers. Not Amazon didn't exist mm-hmm. yet, <laughs> but only one of them noticed that I had done that. (laughs) And I had little clues, like the names of my characters were based on the names of the Greek characters as well. So for this novel, The Exiles, I actually, for the first time, used Joseph Campbell's 12 Steps of the Hero's Journey as I was mapping the story, and I mapped it across three characters. So I start with in one person's perspective, I move to another, and I end with a third. And the arc of that hero's journey moves through all three of them. But that's funny that you ask, because I have not really talked about that before, but that's how I did that. And then the story of Mathena, as I said, was based on her her real life. So that one is woven through. I think it's, I make it sound really complicated. I don't think it's that complicated. It moves more (laughs) chronologically. And I don't think the reader gets confused as you go. Sure. So I'm curious about your original writing journey. What was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel, Sweetwater, published? Well, I, people always ask, when did you start writing or when did you decide to be a writer? And I think of a better way of thinking about it is that all children are born creative. <laughs> Every child sings, dances, draws, paints, writes poetry, writes songs. And the question really is, why do most people stop and some people keep going? I think, I think that's the question because I did all those things. Eventually I, I, in fact, I painted all through high school and I think I realized at a certain point, I just wasn't that talented. Did you, I don't know. Did you ever do anything? Did you ever paint or sing or anything? Oh like yeah. That? Yes. What did you do? What did you do? Uh, I would love to be a, a, a good painter, but I don't, I make quilts though. You do? <laughs> I do. Yeah. Serious? I'm serious. What? What kind of quilts do you make? All kinds, modern quilts, more traditional quilts. That's kind of my thing. That is incredible. It's unusual <laughs> for a man to make quilts. I, I know, I know. They're out there. There are a lot more now that they're social media. Oh my gosh. I'm going to go look it up right after this yeah. uh, because I love quilts. And I think I think the sort of folk art aspect and the American history aspect of quilting is so interesting. I wrote about that in my last novel. Anyway, but I just back to my own creative process. Sure. I I stopped painting, but I got enough encouragement in small ways for my writing that I kept writing. And also, I think I was just so it felt so natural to do it. I started writing poetry. I studied poetry in college, and then from there I went to, to writing fiction. And one thing I've also realized that when you when you do your own when you do your own artistic thing, you think or at least I did, it's not that strange or unusual. But the fact is, writing fiction is a very specific thing. And a lot of people 
neither have any interest in it. Or they don't want to do it. They don't want to read it. An unusual impulse in a way to make stories up as an adult. I don't think it's unusual as a child, but I think it is unusual as an adult. So there is something there that's quite specific about my own desire to frame the world in a certain kind of way. And that's, I think that's something that I've cultivated over time. And when I was in my mid-20s, I guess, I wrote a first draft of my first novel, and I published that, I think, when I was 29. And then I just kept going. I'm not a book-a-year person. I, bu- I publish, on average, every three years. And the publishing process takes a year, so it's two years of work, really, before before the book is put in the pipeline. But I have friends who publish much more than that. And I did an event with John Grisham. Well, I did a several events with John Grisham. And he was just like, babe, I have six books to your one book. <laughs> he, was, he said, I write so many books that my publisher can't keep up with me. I publish two a year, but I even write more than that. And I don't even understand that way of working. I can't imagine. But I more, you know, power to him. He's amazing. And he does that. For me, it's a much longer percolating process of figuring out exactly what I want to tell and how I want to tell it and doing, laying the foundation for it. It just takes a while. That's great. Have you started working on your next one? I have. I'm deep in it. I have done, I've just finished a lot of the research. It's, it's also set in the past, but it's set in Civil War era, North Carolina, based on a, fa- a story in my own family. And by the way, idiotic to take on the Civil War as a subject because the people who know about the Civil War really know about the Civil yeah. War. <laughs> the history buffs are very intense. So I'm a little bit intimidated as I should be, as I should be. But, but it is, I'm always Always, I always want to challenge myself and do something different. And this Australia book was a big challenge. And now to come back to the United States and to tell this kind of story is another whole form of challenge. But otherwise, what's the point? I'm sure you feel that way about, I'm sure you do many things, but your quilts, I'm sure you feel yes. that way. That once you've done something, you want to move on and try something, you know, completely different. Exactly. So I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels and may not have gotten published yet? Yeah, there's so much. I've taught (laughs) for many years, so I have lots and lots of advice. But I think that there are two connected things that keep people from finishing or publishing, I should say. One is that at a certain point in every creative process, I think for me as a novelist, it's it almost always happens when I have about 120 pages where I have a total crisis of confidence in the subject matter, in my ability to wrangle it, in the interestingness, the nature of the story. I just think, Oh my God, there's not enough here for a three or 350 page book. I'm, I have, it's going to bore people. I don't have enough to say. I don't know enough. The writing isn't good enough. I start to question everything. And I think a lot of people get to that point and put the book aside and then end up having a number of incomplete, incomplete drafts or uncompleted drafts because, because it's this sort of watershed, whatever page number people find for themselves or whatever. I just think that every writer comes to a a moment where it feels like it's just daunting and maybe unsurmountable. 
So my advice there is that you just have to push through all the way. And then another related piece of advice is that when you finish the first draft, it's only the beginning. And that's important to remember. It's convinced me to write more quickly and to edit more rigorously. So when you finish a first draft, if you really want to publish, you have to know that it's going to be draft after draft and that you're going to be ruthlessly editing yourself. And that's another part of the process that is so daunting once you think you're done and you're not done. It's that feeling that you'll never be done, but it's crucial. Sure. So what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Oh my goodness. So many books that I've enjoyed recently. I did an event the other night with four writers. And so I read their books and actually love them all so much. One is Hour of the Witch by Chris Bojalian that just came out in hardcover in which he, it's not, it doesn't take place in Salem, but it's about a woman accused of witchcraft, a true story. And it's at the same time period. He's just such a beautiful writer. He wrote The Flight Attendant, which became a TV series. And he wrote Midwives that became a movie He's just so talented. And then in a completely different direction, Ellen Hildebrand's Golden Girl, her new book. I actually hadn't read her before. And her it's a people call her the queen of the beach read. And it really is the most page turning, captivating story. I I so enjoyed it. And then the second the last two ones were Kristen Hanna's book, The Four Winds, her novel out in hardcover. And Paula McLean's When the Stars Go Dark. I I enjoyed them all. They're all writers I admire. And I did this event that was just so much fun with all of them, being able to talk about writing and about the exiles. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novel? I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, but not so much. And I have a website. And on my website, you can sign up for my newsletter. And I have all kinds of tips and tricks and ideas, not to mention things that I think people should buy, like a kind of shoes that I like, and I don't get paid for it, but I just am bossy and like to give advice. (laughs) That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Christina Baker-Klein, author of the novel, The Exiles. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Christina, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you, Jeff, so much. Really appreciate it. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein, performed by Carolyn Lee, available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. By the time the rains came, Mathena had been hiding in the bush for nearly two days. She was only eight years old, and she didn't know much, but she knew how to disappear. Since she was old enough to walk, She'd explored every nook and crevice of Waibalena, the remote point on Flinders Island where her people had been exiled since before she was born. She'd run along the granite ridge that extended across the tops of the hills, dug tunnels in the sugary dunes on the beach, played seek and find among the scrub and shrubs. She knew all the animals, the possums and wallabies and kangaroos, the paddy melons that lived in the forest and only came out at night 
the seals that lolled on rocks and rolled into the surf to cool off. Three days earlier, Governor John Franklin and his wife, Lady Jane, had arrived at Waibalena by boat, more than 250 miles from their residence on the island of Lutruwita, or Van Diemen's Land, as the white people called it. Mathina stood with the other children on the ridge as the governor and his wife made their way up from the beach, accompanied by half a dozen servants. Lady Franklin had a hard time walking in her shiny satin shoes. She kept slipping on the stones. She clung to her husband's arm as she wobbled toward them, the expression on her face as sour as if she'd bitten an artichoke thistle. The wrinkles on her neck reminded Mathina of the exposed pink flesh of a wattle bird. The night before, the Palawa elders had sat around the campfire discussing the impending visit. The Christian missionaries had been preparing for days. The children had been instructed to learn a dance. Mathina sat in the darkness on the edge of the circle, as she often did, listening to the elders talk as they plucked feathers from mutton birds and roasted mussels in the glowing embers. The Franklins, it was widely agreed, were impulsive, foolish people. Stories abounded of their strange and eccentric schemes. Lady Franklin was deathly afraid of snakes. She'd once devised a plan to pay a shilling for every dead snake turned in, which naturally spawned a robust market of breeders and cost her and Sir John a small fortune. When the two of them had visited Flinders the previous year, it was to collect Aboriginal skulls for their collection, skulls that were obtained by decapitating corpses and boiling the heads to remove the flesh. The horse-faced Englishman in charge of the settlement on Flinders, George Robinson, lived with his wife in a brick house in a semicircle of eight brick houses that included rooms for his men, a sanatorium and a dispensary. Behind this were 20 cottages for the Palawa. The night the Franklins arrived, they slept in the Robinsons' house. Early the next morning, they inspected the settlement while their servants distributed beads and marbles and handkerchiefs. After the noontime meal, the natives were summoned. The Franklins sat in two mahogany chairs in the sandy clearing in front of the brick houses, and for the next hour or so, the few healthy Palawa males were made to perform a mock battle and engage in a spear-throwing contest. Then the children were paraded out. As Mathina danced in a circle with the others on the white sand, Lady Franklin kept looking at her with a curious smile. The daughter of the chief of the Lorena tribe, Mathina had long been accustomed to special attention. Several years ago, her father, Totera, like so many of the Palawa deported to Flinders, had died of tuberculosis. Mathina was proud to be the chieftain's daughter, but in truth, she hadn't known him well. When she was three, she'd been sent from her parents' cottage to live in a brick house with the white school teacher, who made her wear bonnets and dresses with buttons and taught her to read and write in English and hold a knife and spoon. Even so, she spent as many hours a day as she could with her mother, Wanganip, and other members of the tribe, most of whom did not speak English or adhere to British customs. It had only been a few months since Mathina's mother had died. Wanganip had always hated Flinders. 
She'd often climb the spiny hill near the settlement and gaze across the turquoise sea toward her homeland, 60 miles away.